Hello and welcome to the Triage Method podcast. This is Gary McGowan with my co-host as always, Patrick Farrell. We also have a guest here for those on video. You might see him, Arnie, my new puppy that I got for Christmas. So if you hear any, if you're just listening and you hear any like licking or coughing or chewing, it's not us like getting hungry and eating. It's probably just him chewing on my top. So anyway, um, Happy New Year. I know we've had a New Year episode already, but I hope the New Year is off to a good start for everyone. I think today will hopefully help to maybe bolster that a bit. But Paddy, how are you? I am absolutely splendid, Gary. It's nearly my birthday. Getting old, but quite enjoy it. You know, there's uh, I think I have three gray hairs now. So nice. <clears throat> yourself. You know, we're, we're getting wisdom, apparently. That's what gray hairs apparently mean. You're just getting wise in your old age. Um, but other than that, I'm I'm ready to uh, dominate the year, you know. As always, light work. So, yes, we are going to assist you all, of course, in trying to dominate this year. And we want this episode to be extremely clear cut. Normally on the podcast, what we try to do is to be very nuanced. We go off in many caveats and we'll say, if this, then this, if this, then this, then maybe you want to try this. And what about this and play around with this? In this podcast, we want to be super to the point. For those of you who are coming to try to get on the path, to try to get your life in order with your training, nutrition, and lifestyle, we want to give you the core things to just take care of. And once you have these things done, then you start questioning other things. Because I think that's one of the really, really difficult things. And I do empathize with people on this, is that in the modern kind of information economy online, it's just so difficult to try to decipher what the right thing to do is. And you have so many options. It's like the equivalent of going into a sweet shop with a hundred jars of sweets versus just one sweet of, or one jar of, of mixed sweets that you'd probably be pretty happy with if that was your only option. Now you're left there being indecisive. Will I try this? Will I try this? How much money do I have? Blah, blah, blah. Exact same thing when it comes to fitness. All these different diet options, all these different debates among professionals as to what the best exercises are. And it can be very overwhelming. And even if it's not overwhelming for you, even if you enjoy jumping from one thing to the next, the problem is you don't make any real progress then. So we're very confident, to be honest, that if you follow the super basic recommendations in this episode and you do that for 2023, your health, your body composition, your performance, your general sense of well-being will all be in a better place next year. Yeah, like I'm I'm classifying this as a noise reduction mm-hmm. episode, you know, where you're getting exposed to all this fucking shit online, social media. Oh, do this, blah, blah, blah. Because we see it in the questions we get, you know, we see it in, you know, the types of things that people ask us about in comments, in DMs, etc. Like a lot of people find themselves struggling to get on the path or stay on the path purely because they don't actually know what the foundational things are, the key things that they should be focusing on. And as a result, they're listening to all this noise when in reality, there's one or two things that, oh, this is what actually matters in relation to the diet, for example. There's one or two things that matter in relation to training. You know, let's get the foundational stuff done because that's probably giving you 80, 90% of the results and the rest of the stuff. Well, yeah, it does matter. We're not going to say, oh, it doesn't matter to refine these things and really focus on X, Y, Z. Like, yeah, it does matter, but it only matters once you have the foundational stuff done correctly. You know, like we've said it before, you can go on like a, a weight loss diet, for example, and you can be eating 
healthy. You could be eating incredibly healthy, what everyone classified, look at your diet, the foods that you're choosing, everyone go, yeah, they're healthy foods, but you're trying to lose weight, right? And you're eating too many calories for that goal, right? So you're never going to achieve your goals despite eating all these healthy foods, right? So the reason for that is because you're not looking after your calories. So when we're talking about fat loss, for example, the calorie, the calorie portion or the calorie allocation of the diet is one of those foundational things that has to be looked after before you look after other things, right? So we have to get our priorities straight. We have to get our understanding straight. And to do that, that's what the goal of this episode is. Now, we're really only going to focus on diet, training, sleep, stress management, as those four things, we kind of call them the pillars, right? There are other pillars. They don't get as much airtime because there may be kind of like a secondary pillars that we don't necessarily focus on in the type of work that we do, but that doesn't mean that they're not beneficial or actually part of stuff that you should be thinking about. For example, we could say, you know, being a good member of your society, you know, looking after your psychosocial health, you know, that kind of stuff, like that's a pillar, right? You have to get that stuff dialed in, but it's not really stuff that it's, it's not really our place. I should say to be commenting on that stuff. I'm not going to tell you what groups you should be joining. I'm going to tell you what <laughs> religious organizations, spiritual organizations, etc., that you should be joining, but it is still something that needs to be looked after. So we're going to focus on four pillars, but do be aware that there are more pillars, right? And um, so with that in mind, Gary, where do we start? Is it the diet? I think that's probably for most people where they have the most amount of questions, the most amount of well, what the fuck, what, what should I be doing? Yeah, I think so, because I think um, nutrition is one of those things that like realistically everyone, everyone does focus on to some extent, you know, not everyone tries to go to the gym, um, but almost everyone tries to make some sort of change to their diet. Even if looking at them, you know, you might look at a member of your family, they might have the most terrible diet when you look at them. There's still probably times in the year where they, they say to you, oh, I'm going to try tidy it up a bit now, you know, and they make some changes or they change the way they shop or maybe they go to Weight Watchers. You know, everyone at some point in their life, tr almost tr almost everyone tries to make some sort of change to their nutrition. So this is something that's going to be universally important for pretty much everyone. And fundamentally, people have to look at themselves and say, what are the what are the things that are of most importance for me to change right now in order to move forward towards my goals? So for a lot of people, that means losing a bit of weight, because if we look at the population in general, most people have more body fat than one, they would like more than they would like, and two, more than is optimal for health. So very often that's where people start. And fundamentally, the principle that you need to then follow is to establish a diet that um has a has a calorie deficit or puts you in a calorie deficit and what that means is that you are burning more energy through your daily activities and through your basic resting metabolism existing than you uh, take in so that's just what we refer to as a calorie deficit it's the universal principle in all diets and it's how all fat loss diets work so different diets will talk about different principles, you know, they'll talk about hormones, or they'll talk about keeping you fuller for longer, these types of things. But all of them converge on one common mechanism. And that is that they lead you to eating less than you burn. Okay, so if you eat less than you burn, that means you use your stored body fat for fuel, and therefore you begin to lose body fat over time. So whether this is a 
high carbohydrate, low carbohydrates, ketogenic, vegetarian diet, it doesn't it doesn't actually matter. And that's been, you know, pretty well studied. We know that some people have different preferences in terms of the diet they'd like to follow, and they have other reasons for following a diet. But for fat loss itself, um, it really just comes down to trying to get your calories in order. Now, that doesn't just mean that calories are the only thing that matters. There are other things that matter too. But if you start roughly with trying to get your calories in order, you'll be doing well. And to do that, what you need to do is to find your maintenance calories. So this is the level of calorie intake that would lead you to maintaining your body weight over time, meaning that on average, you're consuming the same amount of calories that you're expending each day. So you can find this in a very easy way, and we call it the average and adjust method. And this is what we use with the vast majority of our clients. There are calculators you can use to calculate your caloric requirements. You can do that in the um, on the NIH Bodyweight Planner website if you'd like. Um, we can link that below. But all you really need to do is do this average and adjust method. And what that means is that for about two weeks, let's say, two weeks is probably the minimum amount of time that's effective, for about two weeks, track your calories. So track everything you eat, eat in the way that you normally do. Maybe you'll make a few changes, but track your calories for two weeks. Log it all into my fitness pal. Then what you do is you look at the average calories that you consume throughout that period. Then what you do is you look at how your weight trended during that time. So ideally, you're weighing yourself each day in the same condition. So you weigh yourself each morning, you know, um, in your underwear after you've gone to the bathroom, ideally. This maintains similar conditions. And then what we look at is, where did your weight go during that time? If your weight dropped during that time, that means that the level of calories that you consumed on average is likely to be in a deficit. And if you'd like to lose fat, you can continue on that trajectory. If your weight maintained, you're likely to be around maintenance. If your weight increased, you're likely to be in a surplus, which would mean that if you're aiming at fat loss, you would reduce from there. Same if you're at maintenance, you would reduce your calories from there. So that's where we start. We try to figure out where our calories are at. And from there, we move in the direction of your goal. If you're trying to build muscle and you want to gain some weight, of course, you'd increase your calories. And generally in both directions, we probably start with an increase or decrease of probably two to 300 calories as a, as a small change to get you moving in the right direction. Depending on your level of experience, the extent of that deficit or surplus will vary, but a small drop of 10 or 200 to 300 calories initially is going to put you in a, in a good place to at least begin losing some body fat. So that's where we start with calories. Yeah, 100%. I don't know if I need to add to that. Yeah, that's fine. Just key checking. So protein is, is the key next point, thing. Let me just say, key point, literally, we just need to find where our maintenance is at. If you want to lose weight, you need to eat a little bit less than that. Or you can exercise a bit more. We should, yep. we should also emphasize that. You can burn more calories. You find your maintenance. If you want to lose weight, you eat a little bit less. If you want to gain weight, you eat a little bit more. If you want to maintain your weight and just really work on the quality of your diet, eat at maintenance, eat in and around maintenance. It's good to go, right? First step, that reduces 80, 90% of the noise out there. Once we understand calories, and it's literally that simple, right? Obviously, there's more complex things that we could get into. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's, that's the bones of it. You understand that? That you literally can be a diet guru because you probably understand more than 50% of these people out here spouting information about various diets. 100%. And next up is protein. And protein is a, a very important one because it supports your muscle building goals. It also does um, help your fat loss in the sense that it helps you keep it fuller. Um, 
it's so it's a, it's a great thing to have in the diet overall. Okay, not an episode on protein. We're just saying eat your protein and what you want to do. One point five grams to two point five grams per kilogram of body weight is a solid uh, position to be in. Again, nuances there in terms of who should go higher, who should go lower, etc. But what we want from you in this episode is to get between that range. Okay, so let's say two grams per kilogram of body weight. What does that mean for me at 80 kilos body weight? 160 grams of protein per day. What does that look like? It might look like three meals of 40 grams of protein plus a 40 gram protein shake after one of my workouts. Okay, now a lot of people struggle with that initially. They struggle to get their protein up. Don't worry about it. What we often say is that if you can if you can get to there, over maybe the first four weeks of the coaching process, I'm pretty happy with that because sometimes what I'll have is clients that come on board, they're eating 80 grams of protein. I want them eating 160. If they're eating 120 by week two, I'm happy. If they're eating 140 by week three, I'm happy. And then maybe 160 from week four onward. Now we've gradually built towards a more optimal diet over time. It doesn't have to be week one, move towards that over time. Okay. You might know what foods contain protein. It's actually so easy these days. Like download my fitness pal, look at the protein content of your foods, go on Google and say top 10 high protein foods for people who do eat animal products, people who don't, who don't eat animal products and tailor your diet from there. Okay. It's uh, much easier these days, especially with things like high protein yogurts and supplements and those types of things. So gradually work towards that target over time. Then you've got your energy substrates. Before and- we go on to that, just because it's important remember for the rest of this as well like we're going to give you numbers we're going to give you whatever oh here do this xyz about these different macronutrients like when we're coaching someone we'll generally you know try to transfer that into foods because people eat foods they don't eat numbers right so you're going to have to do that yourself obviously look if you're listening to this we're not coaching you through this and we want to get through quite a lot today so we're not going to dwell on things too long um but if i'm saying oh you need to eat 180 grams of protein 200 grams of protein whatever that is you then need to translate that into food. What's that actually going to look like for you in an average day? Or what do breakfasts look like? What do lunches look like? What do dinners look like? What do my snacks look like if I need to hit this goal? And like Gary said, you're not going to get that right out to straight out the gate. Perfect. Cool. Got that. Bang on. It's ne- it never happens unless you're like a bodybuilder and you do this stuff, you know, you're like meticulous with your stuff, right? You're going to spend some time trying to figure out, oh, how can I increase protein at breakfast? Oh, maybe I chose to choose this. Oh, it didn't really, didn't really sit well with me. I kind of felt a bit sick after that. Okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to move around. It's going to take some time, right? But when we give you these numbers, that's what I want you to be thinking. Okay, I've set my diet up. I got my calories. I did my maintenance. I got my protein. And when we go on to the energy substrate and all that kind of stuff later on in a second, like, okay, I understand from a theoretical standpoint, this is where the diet should be. How do I then translate that into my actual food selection? And then you start mapping out a day and you go, okay, so that's what a day would look like. What does a different day look like? Oh, that's what a different day would look like. Cool. I clearly am short on protein or I'm clearly too much carbs or whatever it is. How am I going to change that? Yeah. And a a solid kind of starting point for this would be um, using a website like eatthismuch.com. Like it's, I I think that's the URL. Um, But it's again, just a really nice way of like, just put in the calories that you're trying to aim at. And it'll give you at least a rough idea of what your day will look like. Like what I always do with clients is actually start with what their day already looks like and tweak from there. But for people who maybe are starting from a terrible place or you just want to, you know, start with a new template, that can work fine as well. So from an energy substrate perspective, then this is actually a nice way of putting it as energy substrates as opposed to carbohydrates and fats. Because one of the things that people get way too worried about 
is the number of carbs or the number of fats that they consume. And like for most people's goals, it actually doesn't matter at all. Like it does matter in the context of the overall diet, but the specific level really doesn't matter too much. Like we often say for setting fat, aim for somewhere between 0.6 and one gram per kilo of body weight with fat. But can you lose fat on less? Yes. Can you feel good on less? Yes. Can you feel good on more? Can you lose body fat on more? Yes. So it's it's not there's not a specific number here, but that's most practical for reasons beyond this episode. So 0.6 to one gram per kilo. And then what you would do is you calculate your carbohydrates based on the calories that are left over. So if you're on um to 2,500 calories, let's say, and you have two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, 160 grams of protein. Then you multiply that by four. Then you take your fat number, you multiply that by nine because it has nine um, calories per gram. So let's say you went with one gram per kilo and you were the eight of kilo person. Now you've got 80 grams of fat. And then what you do is you basically take the calories you've left over and allocate that to carbohydrates, okay? So that works regardless of what weight you are. Um, it just depends on what protein and fat target you've set. Now, to be honest with you, for a lot of clients, I'll say your calorie target is, is something I want you to focus on. Your protein target is something I want you to focus on. If your fat and carbohydrate varies each day, I don't mind. It's, it's really not much of a big deal, provided you're not deviating to the extremes, you know, where if you have a super high fat intake, it's going to be difficult to get your carbohydrates in, which might compromise performance and stop you from getting your fiber in. All right. And on that note, fiber is another really important component here where it probably takes care of itself if you're focusing on good quality food choices, but it is something I would track for at least a period of time. And what we would aim for is 10 to 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories. So if you are eating a 3000 calorie diet and you're aiming for the lower end, just to start getting fiber up a little bit, you'd be aiming for 30 grams of fiber per day. Okay. So just one note on that is that when you are tracking it, sometimes fiber values mightn't be included on foods that you're listing in my fitness pal. So just pay attention to that when you're tracking it. But in general, if you're making good quality, complex carbohydrate sources uh, or carbohydrate choices with whole grains, you're eating your fruits and vegetables, maybe you've got some beans and legumes in there, your fiber intake should be in a relatively good place. And then the final kind of um, nuance on the nutrient side of things is just aiming for a lower intake of saturated fat, ideally less than 10% of calories per day, and aiming for two to five grams of omega-3 fatty acids. So in practice, what that, what that actually means is choosing kind of conventional healthier fats, if you will. So if you look up a list of healthy fats, you'll get some generic list. And it's actually fine, you know, eat avocados, eat nuts, eat olive oil, etc. Um, and try not to be lathering butter on everything and eating loads and loads of fatty meats. Okay, that's the that's the kind of key point there. You know, eat leaner meats generally. Um, some fatty meat is fine. We want to get some oily fish in the diet. That's going to give you your omega-3 intake um, and typically has a slightly healthier fat profile. So they're the kind of basic dietary principles that you want to follow. Again, are there more nuances there? Absolutely, but not in this episode. Yeah. And then I just have three different things that are, <clears throat> I wrote down for the notes because these are things that whenever I'm coaching someone, it consistently comes up as these are like, we'll say core habits that seem to really make dieting easier. And I, I find myself repeating these often. And the first one is we want to create a blueprint for the diet. And what I mean by that is we want to have some sort of consistent structure with the, with the diet and then avoid just trying to wing it. Right. So what I mean by that is 
okay, you're going to have three meals per day. You're going to have them at roughly the same times. They're going to look roughly like this. You know, it's a blueprint for how your day is going to look. Like Gary, I can ask you like, you know, what did your Wednesday five weeks ago look like in terms of your diet? And you might not be able to tell me the exact foods you had, but you'd be like, yeah, well, if I was in the hospital, it was, you know, roughly we'd have a lunch break here and it was, I'd probably choose something like this and whatever. Like you'd be able to give me the rough outline of your diet because you have a rough structure, you know? Now, obviously, if we're going for specific goals, we need a bit more of a specific structure in terms of, you know, maybe we're going to go, okay, well, I need to have exactly 50 grams of protein at this meal. You know, I need to have X, Y, Z at this meal, et cetera, you know? Like you can be more specific with it. But even if you don't want that level of granularity, we still need a rough outline. Like for me, I know, I'm like, okay, during the day, I like I train twice per day. In the morning, I go to the gym. Then I have all my nine hours of work to do during the day, do my work. And I'm eating three meals in that time frame. Then I go to jujitsu and then I know I come home and I'm like, we have a, a dinner together, whatever in the house. But I'm like, okay, those three meals that I have before jujitsu, I'm like, I know roughly what they're going to look like. I prepare them ahead of time, right? The meal at the end of the day, I'm like, there's a lot more variability there. I might be like, oh, we're going to have pasta. We're going to have X, Y, Z. But I know roughly what the plate should look like to allow me to eat whatever it is, 600 calories, 700 calories, whatever it is that I need to eat. So it doesn't actually matter too much about the food choices because I know the structure, right? So if we get a nice structure, you still need to learn about food choices, how many calories are in X, Y, Z, but it makes it so much easier, right? And I'm sure, again, Gary, I know you this for the fact, like, you do the same kind of thing with your clients as well. You know, we want to create some sort of structure, you know, again, it doesn't have to be perfect. doesn't have to be the exact same every single day. We just need some sort of structure to the diet. The next thing that I find myself repeating very often is we want to make better food choices where possible, right? Because people very often get caught up on, oh, uh, like I couldn't get this perfect whatever food choice. So I fucked it. I just threw away the whole diet. I just, I didn't start out. I just, you know, I'll start again on Monday. Right. And that's not what we want. You want to make good food choices where possible. Look, if you had an extra chocolate bar here or whatever, who cares? Literally just get straight back on track. The next opportunity. Right. A lot of people find success in doing something like, uh, halving their day, right. Where thinking rather than thinking of a day in terms of 24 hours, they think of it in terms of 12 hours. Some people even go as far as to think of it in terms of six hours. So they're like, Oh, I fucked it on the first quote unquote day, the first half of the day, but the next day, quote unquote day, <clears throat> back on track, you know? So that can work. Um, but either way, all we're trying to do is choose better food where possible. And what I mean by that is both in terms of the food selection, in terms of, is it a healthier food for you, better food choice for you? And then also the calorie and macronutrient profile of that meal, you know, where possible, make a good choice. If you can't, no worries, move on, right? There's always a better choice, right? Like if you go out for food and you're like, oh, I don't know the calorie contribution of the meal, that doesn't mean that you have to eat five meals and then get ice cream afterwards, <laughs> you know? Because we all fall for that when we were like 16 or whatever and you start getting into this stuff, you're like, oh, I didn't know it, so uh, I just go fucking all out now, you know? That's not what we want. That's not a helpful food practice. Um, so avoid that, right? Don't worry about the transient fluctuations in both your body weight and then also in terms of your food choice, right? Both of those things, it really doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. It's the average that matters, right? So what are we doing on average, right? And that is, I mean it on average, because a lot of people say, well, Monday to Friday, I eat really well. And then on the weekends, I go hog wild, right? And it's like, yeah, on average, when we average your calories across the week, you're eating in a surplus. 
it's not just the days on average or the meal choices on average. You're like, oh, well, I had whatever, 15 of my 20 meals this week were perfect. It's like, yeah, but it's not like, obviously if we average it out, we go, okay, yeah, it feels like you're on, on track or on point the vast majority of the time. But when we average out the calories across here, it's not where we need to be, right? So again, what do we do on average is the most important thing. And again, an average is both individual food choices or individual days, but also then the average over time, right? Can I, can I just add one thing there before we finish that up? And it's just, um, it's important for, I, I know a lot of people find themselves in this position because like, for example, let's say when we were living together in Dublin that time, me and you, we would both basically eat the same meal, slightly different quantities every single day at the exact same time. It was extremely rigid because our routine was extremely rigid. Like we trained at the same time each day. We were doing the exact same amount of work each day, prepping meals at the same time each day. My life now, um, like I'm a final year medical student, is totally different. Like as I was saying before this, Patty, I'm on like I was in where was I last semester? I was somewhere else in Cork. I was in Waterford. I was in Clonmel. I'm moving to Clonmel again next week. And when I'm in these different places of accommodation, I don't have my normal cooking utensils. I mightn't even have cooking facilities. You know, I mightn't have a shop nearby. So what I end up doing is being a lot more flexible with my diet. But I still follow exactly as you said, like you were saying, when you're having your dinner, you know, roughly what the plate should look like. And I'm the exact same. If I have a lunch break on my placement and there's a centra nearby, let's say, what I'll often do is say, okay, I want a protein source. I want like a fruit source or something like that. And then maybe some sort of carbohydrate source or a fat source, depending on the meal that I'm going for. So that might be like, right, have they got an avon more protein milk? Boom, that's my protein taken care of. Any like blueberries or raspberries on sale? Do they have fresh apples? Boom, that's my fruit taken care of, some carbohydrates there and maybe like a packet of, of almonds or something like that. So they're the types of things that I'll do is just like, it's not a place because you're eating out, but it's the exact same principle. Have you got your protein? Have you got your carbohydrate or fat source? And have you got some sort of additional nutrition like a fruit or vegetable? And that takes care of me all the time when I'm on the road. 100%. And this is again, to the final point, we want to create something that you can see yourself doing for the rest of your life. It's not just some crash diet, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because you understand the principles, you can see yourself doing this for the rest of your life. You can change it to your situation. You can modify it based on what you have going on, right? That's what we want. We don't want to have this. You have to eat six meals a day, chicken, broccoli, rice. And if you deviate from that, you're going to get, I don't know, fucking body composition cancer, right? Like this is not, you're not going to do that when you're 80, 90, 100, right? Um, we need to find something that you can see yourself doing longer term. And the only way we can do that is to educate you, get you to a point with the diet where you know what the key levers are to pull and you can see yourself doing the type of diet that you're currently doing forever forward, right? So again, that takes time. I'm not going to say again, oh, you follow these calorie and macronutrient recommendations that we're giving and it's all perfect. See you later. You've got it dialed in, whatever. It's not going to happen. You're going to, it's going to take time. You're going to settle into it. You're going to go, okay, I fucked up this time or this doesn't work or this works or I don't have a... a uh, like a protocol for dealing with nights out. Okay, I need one. I need to create something, right? It's going to take time. This is a lot of what the coaching process is when we coach someone. It is creating the the long-term protocols, right? Because it's if, if it was as simple as going, here's your calories, here's your macros, go off and hit those, like I'd be out of business. Like there would be no nutritionists at all. You know, half our business would be gone, right? Because 
you could literally just plug all your data into a calculator, an online calculator. Here's your calories. Here's your macros. Boom. See you later. But it doesn't work like that. You, that doesn't happen in the real world. That's not how it works out, right? Um, but anyway, Gary, I think that's all we want to say on the diet in terms of there's the bare bones, right? Whatever diet you're thinking this year, whatever fucking diet you're being marketed, does it adhere to these things? Or does the diet that you've set up for yourself adhere to these things? If it doesn't, then what are the reasons, the rationale for that, right? And if there are none, it's just like, oh, uh, just because. Like, that's not a scientific way of going about things. It's unlikely that that's going to lead to the best long-term results. Absolutely. No. Training. Of course, we want you training. And again, we're kind of following a similar framework here in that you can go into an incredible amount of detail here. And we actually do. Like if you follow us on social media, you'll see we talk about all sorts of nuances about exercise mechanics and anatomy and that type of thing. But the first step for anyone is actually just to be active. Like, can you be an active person? And like that, that before we get to the actual weight training and cardio and that type of thing, one of the best things you can do is just make an effort to walk more each day, you know? So aim for something like 10,000 steps per day. And no, of course, it doesn't have to be 10,000 per day. Like it's just a an easily communicable target. Well, if it's 8,000, if it's 5,000, you previously did 1,000, fantastic. You're doing a great job. So just try to walk more each day. Try to be a bit more active. Another thing I'll suggest to clients is, you know, um, try to replace some of your more sedentary hobbies with active hobbies. So for example, if you're, meeting friends at the weekend and that's something you always do maybe you always go for food um, and you find that's quite indulgent maybe say yeah do you want to go for food and then afterwards you might go for a walk in a nearby beach or do you want to go to the park for a walk or do you want to go for a hill walk on sunday whatever you know these types of things are often things that people want to do but i think sometimes especially uh, guys can be like this a lot of the time they're kind of scared to ask the boys like, oh, do you want to go like hike up a mountain? If you normally go for pints, that's what you normally do. Um, But mo- most people are, are up for that. So, you know, bring that into your life more. Try to become a more active person generally. And then, of course, training itself is still important. So from a training perspective, of course, we want you in the gym. We want you lifting weights. It's incredibly important. We've discussed those reasons many, many times before. And you want to be there. I think somewhere between two and four times per week. I think that's the sweet spot for most people. I have plenty of clients that go five or six times, but there are people who have been in the gym for years and they're already well on that path. It's their main focus. For me, I'm in the gym probably three or four times a week at the moment. Um, Other days I'm training jujitsu. So if you can get there three or four days or two to four days, you're doing fantastic, okay? And what you want to do in general when you look at your your workout structure across the week is that right you're in the gym let's say three days can you train each major muscle group in those days that's a great start so you're training your shoulders you're training your chest your back you're training your glutes your hamstrings your quads just grossly you're training all major muscle groups that doesn't mean you need to have the exact same amount of sets for every muscle group or that you need to have dedicated exercises for upper chest and lower chest and this type of thing there are nuances down the line for now are you training all the major muscle groups and are you getting there three days per week? If you've done that, if you could get each muscle group done twice per week, fantastic. That's another bonus that's there. Um, And again, that's something that you can easily do with various types of workout structures. For example, let's say you're training Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Monday is a full body day where you kind of do maybe one exercise for each major muscle group. 
And then you have an upper day on a Wednesday and a lower day on a Friday. That means that across the three days, each muscle group will get hit to some extent twice per week. And that's a really nice way of introducing um, your training because you're not doing all of your training volume, all of your sets on one day. When you do it all on one day, you're much more sore and you've got less exposures across the week. So if you can get it done twice per week, that'd be fantastic. Generally, what you want to aim for then is somewhere between, you know, eight and 12 reps per set as like a starting point. Like if you were just to say, give me an, uh, give me a rep range that's going to be good for most people. Yeah, eight to 12 is probably a good, a good rep range. You can broaden that to maybe like six to 20 most of the time, but eight to 12 is kind of like, the one that features on general programs most often and is what will give you success with building some general strength and building up some muscle mass as well. Then it's you also probably the most practical because, you know, yeah, really reps, it's very hard to do them on certain exercises, lower reps, again, hard to do them on certain exercises, eight to 12. You can do that on most exercises mm -hmm. and progress for a long, long time. You know, like if you're doing lateral raises, for example, six reps on lateral raises, probably going to stagnate quite quickly <laughs> you know um but something like 12 reps okay yeah you can get some some nice progress with this absolutely and and then and then kind of you know again like the like the total training day discussion and like the nutrition discussion when we talk about sets overall you want to aim for roughly 10 to 20 sets per muscle group but start at the bottom. You know, a lot of people, when we say 10 to 20, they hear 20. That's all they hear because they want to do as much as possible. But especially if you're training three days per week, like trying to get 20 sets for muscle group isn't really practical. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're taking on these basic recommendations, you don't need 20 sets per muscle per week. You know, I don't do that at the moment. I haven't done that for a long time because I haven't been focusing on like maximizing my muscle mass as my number one goal. So if you can get 10 sets per week per muscle group, you're doing a great job. What might that look like? It might look like, let's say, let's say your quads, we're talking about quads, maybe on your full body day on the Monday, you do three sets of squats and you do two sets of leg extensions. That's five sets done. Then on your lower day, um, on the Friday, you end up doing maybe five sets of leg press. Let's just say that for simplicity's sake. Now you've got your 10 sets of, of quad work done. It also doesn't mean you have to get 10 for every muscle group. Like what I'll often have people do is start them off aiming for maybe 10 sets per muscle group on the muscles they care about most. And then maybe like six to eight on the muscles that are less of a focus. You know, you don't need to do 10 sets for calves. If you previously played GA, you've got great calves and like you're, you now want to build up your upper body. I know, I know Patty, it's very upsetting. Some people are, have calves. It's it's just shocking, really. But, you know, some people are blessed. They have calves. So just leave the, leave the sets of calf training for the rest of us. You don't need to do it, okay? <laughs> but in all seriousness, like, some people respond really well in certain muscles. Another classic one is, like, people who just have big arms. Like, they, 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 they tell others just, oh, just do your bench press. Just do your rolls. Just do your pull-ups. And they've just gotten great arm growth from that. They might need to do additional sets of curls, but I, I that certainly never worked for me anyway. <laughs> my back grew, my chest grew, my shoulders grew, but the arms just never came. So um, that approach of just do your generic compound movements doesn't work for everyone. But the overall point there, focus on the major muscle groups, focus on the ones you care about, and don't be afraid to drop back the number of sets on muscle groups that aren't as important to you. All right. So that's the weight training side of things. Do you have anything else to add there? Yeah, they're just the basic recommendations, guys. You know, it's it's not not it doesn't have to be too fancy right now. The same thing can be said for your cardio. 
what we generally say is is in line with the general exercise guidelines for health. If you can get 150 minutes, which is two and a half hours of moderate intensity aerobic exercise per week, you're doing fantastically. That recommendation is then cut in half, 75 minutes, if you're doing vigorous intensity activity. Now, people get really caught up here. What's moderate? What's vigorous? It doesn't matter too much, okay? What matters is that you're aiming for roughly between that. What I will say to people is one to three hours. One to three hours where your heart rate is elevated to a decent level. Are you short of breath? And you do that for one to three hours a week? Fantastic. That's a great starting point, especially along with your weight training, because you can make the case that weight training, especially for a beginner, is also somewhat aerobic in nature. It's giving them a decent cardiorespiratory stimulus. So don't sweat the numbers here too much. What what I might what I would suggest is something like if you're doing, let's say, your three days of weight training per week, um, what you could do is put 15 minutes on the cross trainer at the end of each of those workouts. Now you've got 45 minutes done. Now what you could do is maybe on two other days per week, you independently do 30 minutes. So that might be a jog. It might be a cycle. It might be a swim. It might be a hike. And now you've got your hour plus your 45. You've got 105 minutes done already. Okay. That's a great starting point for anyone. And it's more than really I'd expect any beginner to be doing overall at the beginning. So just start off with that view of, I want to try to get one to three hours where my heart rate is elevated whether it's running or cycling or hiking doesn't matter. If you're a raw beginner and you've no level of fitness, walking on the flat for some people can be enough for this, especially if you're doing it for a prolonged period of time. You know, if you have a dog, you're going to walk in the dog and the dog's pulling you ahead. If you're walking a bit faster, doing like a power walk, that will get your heart rate up to 100, 120, 130, maybe even more beats per minute, which is a moderate intensity um, activity at that point. So it, it really, again, doesn't have to be too fancy. Just be consistent with it. And then at three months down the line, you can say, you could say to yourself, right, I want to, I want to ramp it up now. I want to do more interval work or I want to do some longer fixed cardio sessions. But at the beginning, the gains come so easy that you just don't have to worry too much about specifics. 100%. I don't have anything else to add to that. Well, well, I suppose, again, like you said, for beginners, like brisk walking, brisk walking can be a phenomenal conditioning yeah phenomenal cardio tool now obviously there comes a point where you're fit enough strong enough healthy enough etc where you're like it's really not cutting it anymore and for that you're probably going to need to do some dedicated cardio but like i was saying you can spread this across the week but you can also just do it all at once you know if you go oh i'm just going to go for a hike it's a two-hour hike you're pretty much done your 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 bit for the week <laughs> you know and then you maybe sprinkle in some other stuff where you're like oh yeah look i just try to go for a, a 10 minute brisk walk on my lunch break you're, you're getting a fucking decent whack of cardio in you know so it just comes down to figuring out how you can organize this into your life because again similar with the diet we want to do this stuff for the rest of our life or at least some variation of this stuff for the rest of our lives right so we need to create something that is actually sustainable absolutely and then the next thing is again a very a very basic practice but it's to aim to get enough sleep per night and this is something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and, and a lot of people don't, but make it seem like they struggle with it. And what I mean by that is that in the last few years, I think a lot of people have come to realize the importance of sleep, which is a very positive thing. But then some people can go to the other side of the, let the pendulum swing too far, where if they miss an hour of sleep one night, they don't think they should work out or they make themselves feel crap. It's like this nocebo-like effect. And again, it comes back to averages. On average, we want you to be getting somewhere between seven to nine hours of sleep per night. 
Does that mean if one night per week you get five or six hours, your week is ruined? Absolutely not. It's really not too much of a big deal. So seven to nine hours of sleep per night, aiming to be relatively consistent with your sleep and wake times. That's a really good idea. And that's actually, that's beyond health. That's just like like basic um, habits, productivity. I think that if you can get up at the same time each day, go to sleep at the same time each day, you've now got those pillars that are fixed within your routine that you can build the rest of your day around. So let's say you go to bed at 10 p.m., uh, you want to get eight hours, you're up at 6 a.m., and you do that every day, you're you're sorted then. There might be a night where you stay up till 11, or maybe there's a morning where you get up a bit earlier. That's fine. Again, once you're getting somewhere between seven and nine hours on average, it's you're, you're going to be in a good place. Now, some people find that they can... They can get six on average, six to seven, and they do pretty well. Um, that's fine. You know, it's in general. I think if you're if you can get seven or more, I think that's probably likely to catch a greater proportion of the population. There are some people who are short sleepers who six hours is like enough for them, and they feel perfect, and there's no evidence that they're suffering any ill effects of that. But the problem is that a lot of people, and I put myself in this camp as well, a lot of people try to fool themselves into thinking that they're more rested than they are, um, when in fact, it's a very small portion of the population that will sleep five or six hours per night and feel their best. What you often notice is that as you begin to sleep more, you're initially tired, but longer term, then you begin to realize, oh, I actually was way more tired when I was sleeping six hours per night. I just didn't realize it, okay? So seven to nine hours for most people. Now, the quality of your sleep can also be affected by a number of other variables. So you might be in bed for seven to nine hours, but you might be waking multiple times, or you might be struggling to get to sleep. Or, you know, when you wake in the night, you're actually awake for an hour or so. And there's a number of things you can do to improve your sleep quality. One of those being having a consistent wind down routine. This is a fantastic idea. And it's something that when I have when I have a bit more time to be able to do this, I feel so good. Like the last few weeks when I've been off for Christmas, um, I've just had the last hour of the day where I sit down, you know, the lights are dimmed and I'm just reading my book, just chilling out. And it makes such a difference to my sleep compared to if I'm if I'm uh, during the semester and I'm uh, on placement and I've got assignments and I've got my triage work and then we're training. Some days I'll come home from jujitsu training at 9 p.m. and I'm trying to go into bed then and I'm still half wired. You know, it's a totally different experience to having that wind down routine. So if you can have some sort of wind down routine, that will improve your sleep quality. There are other things that will also improve your sleep quality, um, such as uh, reducing your body temperature. Now, that might sound a little counterintuitive for some people because you think, God, I don't want to be cold in bed. But if you're really warm in bed, it actually compromises uh, your sleep quality. So this is a, a simple fix, really, is, is that, you know, if you're in if you're in Ireland and you're sleeping with the, the heavy quilt or the heavy duvet and the heating's on and you're sweating throughout the night, Maybe sleep with a sleep with a lighter duvet. Uh, maybe s- remove a layer of pajamas, etc. So you want the room to be relatively cool but comfortable. This doesn't mean you want to be shivering. You should still be comfortable. All right. And um, then you want to reduce blue light exposure. This is something that is incredibly important for people in in our field because we work on our computers all the time. And I'm staring at this lap, this computer sometimes from. God, the, the the crack of dawn until nighttime, right until I'm going to bed. 
So I have an app, and I know you have the same, Patty. A lot of people have the same. They use an app called Flux, F.Lux, and this just changes the composition of your screen so that there's a little bit less blue light emitted later in the day. You can also just avoid them altogether, which is the ideal. The same thing goes then for television, phone, screens of any sort. And that's why I say that my wind-down routine features reading a physical book and dimming the lights because that's reducing that blue light exposure. You can also use blue light blocking glasses to assist with this. And that would really be the for the person who is, you know, they know they're going to be exposing themselves to screens and they want to minimize that exposure to the greatest extent. There's a variation in quality of uh, those glasses. So just do, you know, do your due diligence in buying a good product there. The other thing that's really helpful and it doesn't seem directly, go ahead. Blue light. Um, it's mainly in the evening time that we want to do this because a lot yes, of people yes, see, yeah. see them with like blue light blocking glasses and they put them on straight across uh, seven a.m. They're putting them on. It's like totally stupid. <laughs> not, that's not helpful. What's helpful is minimizing your blue light exposure. We'll say after sundown. You know, yeah, yeah. when you want to have that natural kind of wind down. Now, this is one of the reasons I actually don't like that app F Lux. Like in Ireland and fucking England, it's dark at like three o'clock. <laughs> You know, and that flux starts kicking in then going like, all right, we're going <laughs> to start dimming the lights then when really what you want to do in the next in the or sorry, in the three to two hours before sleep, that's really when you want to start doing it. You know, like you keep minimizing your blue light exposure. Um, So something like blue light blocking glasses can work in the wind down. That's why we put it as part of the wind down routine, not. <laughs> your morning routine <laughs> yeah because what we're looking for there is is dim light melatonin onset and that melatonin is the hormone that assists with the reducing sleep latency so it's what's going to help you to get off to sleep initially um and obviously if you're minimizing your exposure to any light in the middle of the day well now you're all over the place like you don't want that melatonin to be secreted in the middle of the day now you're just going to be tired and sleepy why would you want that so we want to save it for the end of the day and the other thing that assists with that then is actually the total other side of the spectrum is getting light in the morning ideally morning sun exposure that's the best condition if you can get sun in your eyes in the morning that's going to help within training this sleep-wake cycle or your circadian rhythm overall and it will leave you in a better position then in the evening when it comes to um, winding down and going into the, the dark cycle um, of the day. So the early early sun exposure and then late um, minimizing light exposure and specifically minimizing blue light exposure is also a really important uh, one there. Now, this time of year in Ireland, really difficult to get any sort of um, sun exposure, uh, especially in the morning. Like, if I'm up, I'm up very often at half four or five in the morning, it's three or four hours until I'm going to see any light, you know, and it's certainly not even sunlight. It's still pretty much dark. Um, so that's a difficult one. You can get different like uh, therapeutic uh, light boxes that can be used that can give you a, a lot of light into your eyes in the morning. Um, I haven't actually used one myself. I did consider it this winter. I just never got around to it. Um, some people find them helpful. I just haven't used it, so I can't really say. 100%. And that is one of the things to do, pay attention to. Like when we're talking about early morning sun exposure, like it, we're talking five minutes. That's all you actually really need. Yes. When it, Not sunbathing. Like. When, it, when it's bright out, like I'm like, as your coffee is fucking being made, you're boiling the kettle or whatever, look out the back garden or walk out the back garden even better. <laughs> or like I have a balcony. I'm like, walk out to the balcony get some light into the eyes, you know, 
that's all you really need. Now, if it's overcast, if it's really cloudy, you're probably going to need longer. You're probably going to need half an hour. But this is where stuff like, oh, you're on your commute to work. Maybe, I don't know, keep the window open so you're getting some light in through that way, you know? Now, again, I know in Ireland and England, piss and rain, you probably don't want your, <laughs> your window open. But these are just things to consider. Um, and again, it's not that you have to do all of these things absolutely dialed in. This would just be pretty ideal if you could get it done, you know? Um, and then, Gary, are there anything that we should avoid throughout the day if we're trying to get good, wholesome sleep? Yeah, ideally you want to avoid alcohol. Um, and this is one that people often don't realize because they'll, you know, they might have a couple of drinks to wind down in the evening, but it does compromise your sleep quality. And everyone knows this anecdotally that, you know, if you've gone out for a few pints, you've, you, you might be in bed for eight, nine hours, but you wake up and you're still wrecked. You know, it doesn't feel like you've slept. And that's because the sleep quality is much, much poorer. And you can observe this very clearly with the, you know, the, the omnipresence of um, activity watches these days. Everyone is tracking their heart rate all the time. And what people often do is they look at their heart rate in the morning, but look at your heart rate throughout the night. Throughout the night, It's actually fascinating to look at after a night of drinking alcohol because you have like a massive increase in heart rate throughout the night. Like I was out a couple of times over Christmas. And even if I wasn't you know drunk, just having a few pints, I'm still seeing like an increase in heart rate throughout the night of, like 10 to 30 beats per minute um, 30 beats or even 40 early in the night. Like that's a, that's a lot. Like that's a, a 50 to like 75% increase in my resting heart rate. So it's just goes to show the, the stress that it is putting on your body. And you can imagine that if you're consuming alcohol heavily once or twice a week, that's potentially sabotaging sleep for, you know, three or four nights. Um, so, so this is something that is, is very potent. Um, that's not to say that like having, a glass of wine with your dinner is going to have a significant effect here. Um, like it can, it's part of alcohol is a part of many, many cultures and many people do consume alcohol healthfully in moderation. And if you're just having one drink, probably not going to make too much of a difference unless you're really sensitive, but at the same time, like it's not helping, you know, that's, that's kind of the message. There's at least going to be some effect on your sleep and the more you have, the worse it's going to be. Similar can be said for actually one thing on that as well is, probably something like um you know smoking and smoking cannabis etc a lot of people think that that's a good idea as well as a as a nightcap but again that's something that can also uh, compromise sleep quality like any using any drug in general to get you to sleep what you see is that sleep quality is compromised from that and that includes pharmaceutical drugs so often when doctors prescribe sleeping tablets it might help you get to sleep but when you look at sleep architecture that results from that it often doesn't improve it so that can be it can be helpful as a short-term intervention, but long-term you want your overall routine and lifestyle to take care of these things. The other thing is obviously caffeine. Okay. So if you're consuming caffeine, um, that's perfectly fine to consume caffeine, but you have to one, consider your sensitivity to it. So I genuinely have a friend who like, if he has a coffee full stop or a monster full stop, like he's wired for one to two days like it, that's just even if it has it in the morning very very sensitive to caffeine i'm not like that at all i'm not sensitive to it um, especially because i've adapted to it over time but that still doesn't mean that i have free reign to have coffee at 9 p.m at night it will affect my sleep quality and it will affect your sleep quality and one thing of note is that the half-life of caffeine is actually quite long and what that means is that like let's just use the figure of six hours if you have a, a 
let's say a, a small cup of coffee, 100 milligrams of caffeine, let's say. And that's not a strong cup. That's 100 milligrams of caffeine. And you have that at 6 p.m. You want to have a small cup before you work out. Six hours later, 12 p.m., you still have 50 milligrams of that caffeine acting in your system. Six hours later, again, you still have 25 milligrams of that caffeine in your system. So it takes quite a while for the caffeine to get out of your system. And thus, having caffeine later in the day is probably not a great idea. And I'll often use the cutoff of like, you know, after lunchtime, try not to have caffeine. If someone really needs it at the, in the workday at maybe three o'clock to get them over the three o'clock slump, that's fine during a busy period. Um, it's probably not going to affect your sleep too much unless you're really sensitive. But as a as a kind of a, a solid rule, if you can have your caffeine in the morning and not have to go back to it after lunch, then that's probably like optimal, if you will. Yeah, I'm just on that half-life thing is again. This is one of those things that's actually it's actually quite annoying if you're a habitual drinker of caffeine, like coffee, whatever, because let's say you even do follow what Gary just said there. You go, okay, I'll have a coffee in the morning. You know, I like one before work. It just wakes me up, whatever. And then I like to have one maybe with my lunch or maybe just before lunch or after, whatever, right? That's cool on the Monday, right? But that caffeine's still in your system then on the Tuesday, right? Obviously, it's to a lower extent because you've been following these kind of recommendations. But let's say you've still got 100 milligrams of caffeine in your system on Tuesday morning. Then you have your regular coffee. And then you have your coffee again on in the afternoon. Wednesday comes around. Let's say you have 150 milligrams of caffeine in your system, you know, and let's get all the way to Friday. And now you still have 200 milligrams of caffeine in your system on Friday. So you feel like, oh, I'm having this cup of coffee and it's not really doing much because your sleep has maybe been impacted across the week because you've had the guts of 200 milligrams of caffeine <laughs> coursing through your system all night. And um, so that is something to consider and it's generally I, I try to recommend to a lot of my clients uh to have either caffeine free days or reduced caffeine days like save your high caffeine intakes for the days that you need it now it's not always possible like you know you might have to just go out and get after it monday to friday you might be like that's just the way it goes but on the weekend then try to have at least a reduced amount of caffeine you know like it's rare that you'll need to be consuming like, I don't know, 600 milligrams of caffeine every single day, an entire year, like have some caffeine free days, have some days which are lower intake and get on with it, you know? Um, otherwise, again, you have the situation where over time sleep becomes worse because you actually just have built up so much caffeine in your system. Now, again, I'm not going to say that it's going to completely destroy your sleep, but it is something to consider that it does compound over time. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I'm a, I'm a devil for this in that I'm always using, or I'm always consuming caffeine really. And like, I use quite a lot of it at times. And what I notice is that when I do come out of a period where I've been drinking a lot more coffee, um, like towards the end of last semester, then it went, went into the Christmas holidays. You know, I, I just stopped drinking as much coffee. I might have one cup uh, a day or be some days where I don't have it. And now I notice that when I have it again, I've, I'm much more sensitive to it. So if you are someone like me that has those prolonged periods of time where you're just kind of intensely working and you need to keep just driving it on through this, there's no time really for you to, to stop and rest. Um, do try when you can to have those periods of time where you pull back a bit because you do really benefit from it a lot more. Um, and I know everyone knows that in theory, but few people actually put it into practice. So do give it a shot if you can. 100%. And then, right, I think that's sleep. Again, do all those things with the sleep. 
if you want to have good sleep, which everyone should want. Um, the final one then, Gary, is stress management. How do we how do we deal with this? No idea. No idea. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not able to do it. Um, no, in all seriousness, um, it is actually really important to try to manage your stress. And sometimes I think, and the reason I kind of say that jokingly is sometimes people think that stress management equals stress avoidance. Um and or or just like getting rid of any feeling of stress, which isn't realistic, especially for people who are kind of of our temperament, let's say. Like it's just you want those stressors in your life. That's that's how you move forward in life. You need stress. Okay. And even if you don't want stress, there will inevitably be stressors related to family, career, whatever it happens to be. So you have to try to first and foremost organize your life. Okay. And this is this is where stress management starts, and it's what it's what people don't really like when talking about stress management, because what I find is that a lot of the conversation is related to like self-care practices. You know, if you just journal and meditate and this type of thing, which has its place, that that will just take care of it. But if your life is totally chaotic, disorganized, you have no schedule that you follow, you don't know when you're doing things, you're training and eating at different times each day, you're getting up and going to sleep at different times each day, you're not hitting your deadlines, etc., like that's going to leave you in a place where you're just far more stressed than you need to be. So firstly, organize your life, okay? That involves scheduling, of course, and having clarity on what your week might look like, what your days look like, etc. But it also involves being very clear on the kind of macro level of what you're aiming at. So if you're aiming at um, trying to, let's say, graduate with a first-class honors degree, right? Let's say you're in college and that's what you're focused on at the moment. That means you have to say, no to other things so that might mean saying no to you know the the trips out with your friends at the weekend for an exam or it might be saying no to nights out or it might be saying no to things that might be conventionally productive so maybe there's a an event that you've been invited to speak at or maybe um you've had an opportunity to speak on a podcast or you've had an opportunity to work out with someone that you admire whatever it happens to be if you've got these different things that are cropping up you have to actually be able to say no um, because being able to say no is actually one of the best things you can do for organizing your life and making sure that you're you have clarity with what you're aiming at. So if you can do that first and foremost, that's going to enable you to manage stress because you're living quite deliberately and you know that your days have been set up by you. And that sense of autonomy is actually quite empowering and it makes it a less stressful experience. That's my personal experience that with studying medicine and with my work at triage as well, it's actually a lot less stressful than the same units of work might be for someone else because I've brought this all voluntarily on myself so it's not like you know my parents pressured me into doing medicine or it's not like I'm working for a boss that I don't like and he's making me do all this crap work that I don't want to do so if that was the case the stress would be phenomenologically very different the experience of work would be very different so get organized try to have clarity on what you're doing um, and try to, you know, take take control, take responsibility and have that sense of autonomy. From there, then you can have go ahead. organizational stress is actually, well, I've read a few different studies on it, a whole series of it are talking about stress and stress management in our nutrition course, because obviously, look, it's part of all this stuff. Um, and a lot of the studies would point that organizational stress is actually one of the major stressors in people's lives. And there's two parts to that. First of all, it's your own internal, like we'll say organizational capabilities, et cetera. And then there's also 
your work because your work will dictate oh well you have to be here at this time and you have to do this and maybe their systems are all chaotic there's no like organization to it um and all that stuff creates a lot of stress and there's obviously other stressors environmental stress blah 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 we all hear about them all the time but organizational stress i feel is one of those ones that kind of goes under the radar because well in work environment you maybe don't have a lot of control over it and then in your own life it's kind of you don't want to take control over it. you don't want to accept the fact that you, the stress in your life is actually caused by you <laughs> like but it is the case right so you have to get organized you have to organize your life whatever that means for you it's going to look different for everyone but we still need to set our lives up in a way that is productive for our goals for what we're trying to achieve and to minimize stress all the other stuff when we're talking about stress management yeah it's good we're going to talk about like different stress management techniques and stuff they're all good but unless you actually get organized you're probably not going to do those different techniques <laughs> and then you're also going to continue to get stressed because you need to get organized like imagine cleaning your room is stressing you out and then you go oh well I'm stressed for cleaning my room. I'm going to do some breathing techniques to organize, like, you know, bring my stress down. You do your breathing techniques. You come out of that and you go, fuck, my room is still dirty. I still need to clean my room. The stress is back. That's the same with organizational stress, where unless you actually get organized, the stressor is always going to be there. So you have to actually get organized. Absolutely. And that's the thing with these stress management techniques as well. I'm way why it often sounds like I'm against them is because like people, people try to bring them into their life as like another stressor. Like if someone told me that I had to do 30 minutes of breast breath work and 30 minutes of meditation every morning, what? It's a breast work, breast work, <laughs> breath work, <laughs> 30 minutes of breath work and uh, 30 minutes of meditation every morning. Like that would just be stressful because that would mean that I have another hour of my day gone. So sometimes just getting organized and actually taking things out of your life is, is just as useful. So some of the stress management techniques that people do have success with are like breathing techniques. So that might be something as simple as like when you start to feel super anxious, you consciously slow down your breathing, focus on your breath, slow inhale, slow exhale. And that then leaves you in a position where you've at least taken even 10 seconds to just stop yourself, pause and then get back into whatever it is that you're doing. There's so many different ways that you can implement breath work. Uh, some people love it. Um, me, not really something I do personally, but it is something that people have success with. The same can be said for things like meditation. Meditation exists in like countless different forms, whether it's um, as part of a religious tradition, um, associated with spiritual traditions, or just something that is very much uh, internal. Um, so med meditation is is something, yes, very varied, but in general, it's something that can be helpful, whether it's associated with movement or not. Um, it can be associated with movement in the form of uh, yoga, for example. Now, yoga practices vary a lot, but a, med a meditative component can be uh, associated with that as well. So I know you used to teach yoga, so do you have anything to, to say on that? No, not really like meditation for a lot of people is quite good it gets you well depending on how it's done it can get you to be more connected with your body it can also get you to be a little bit disconnected with your mind which can be a bit of a good thing but it can also get you to be more connected with your mind and better in control of it it kind of in my mind it goes back to that organizational thing where like like i have adhd right so i kind of like meditation because a lot of meditation practices teach you to you know 
you to be in charge. You know, you're not trying to guide things, but you're still in charge. You know, you maybe your thoughts, for example, might come into your head. Like you don't have to dwell on that. You can just let it pass by, you know? And like, that's very good for some people because their thoughts become, you know, overpowering. They become anxious or there's like, in my case, for example, again, ADHD, I'm like, there's a fucking million different thoughts coming in all on at once. So if I just focus on all of them, nothing would ever get done, you know? So meditation can be more beneficial for different people. But again, it just depends. And again, some people like to, you know, bring some sort of movement practice into that. And that can be very different. Like I, we've said it before, like we both do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Like I would classify Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as a meditative practice yeah, because yeah. I'm not thinking of stuff. Like that's why I do it in the evening, even though it probably does impact my sleep. And I'm sure you're the same, but I'm like, it actually stops me from thinking about all the work stuff that I have to do. Cause like we're building a lot of stuff in the background that I know a lot of people don't see. Um, but there's so much stress that goes along with that. And I just like to go to jujitsu. I don't think about any of that. Like I can literally feel it, you know, leaving my body, doing the warm up, And I'm just kind of going, okay, and now we're into the jujitsu time, you know? And like all the stressors, all those different thoughts are gone. And then afterwards I come home, don't really think about work. You know, like it's rare that you'd get a text from me or like a message on Slack or whatever in the evening, you know? I'm like, you might be doing work in the evening because, you know, you that's the time you're doing work after whatever other shit that you're doing <laughs> um but i'm like i'm i'm completely relaxed now now this is my relaxation time i don't think about this stuff before bed because i know for me that means my sleep gets impacted you know so meditation and different things like that it really depends on the individual and what you need and what you get out of it absolutely and the other thing that i think we all agree on is get out in nature you know i think uh, getting out into the natural world being connected with that is just one of the best things that you can do and ideally doing that you know with well actually i, I don't necessarily agree with this statement but doing it with others can have unique benefits but so can doing it on your own sometimes like personally i really i love going for just a long walk like on my own in the woods or something like i know not a lot of people like that and i think like particularly for women that can be quite scary you know i think it's one it's one of the the male privileges that I'm most grateful for is that if I want to get up at five o'clock in the morning, go out in the dark and walk in dark areas, doesn't bother me in the slightest, but that's, that's something a lot of people wouldn't do. And a lot of men wouldn't do that as well. So not necessarily advising that, but getting out in your own nature, provided it's safe, of course, is something that I would definitely advise if you enjoy time on your own. Um, but also spending it with others is something that can be really useful as well in nature. 100%. And that kind of brings us on to the next point of stress management, which is have hobbies, right? <laughs> like it seems pretty straightforward. But having hobbies is like the goal of hobbies is to help you better manage your stress. The goal of hobbies is to relax you, is to make you enjoy life. You know, the amount of people like Gary, you're getting to the age now where, you know, you'll start seeing all your friends. What age are you now? 28 or something like that? 27. Seven. You know, you're going to start seeing all your friends if they've not already done it. They just give up on all their hobbies. Like they just yeah. stop doing you know, usually happens around 25 to 28 people. You're like, oh yeah, I go to this club three nights a week, or I do this thing, or I do X, Y, Z during the week. They just stop doing them, you know, and they end up having absolutely no hobbies, no distractions, no other things that are going on in their life, you know? And it's one of those things that 
you don't know how valuable it is until you stop doing it. And I'm not saying, you know, you have to get out of the house or anything. You can have an internal hobby or an introverted hobby. Like you could like, I don't know, crocheting or something. Like I like playing chess, you know, I play chess, even though it's a two person game. Like I play it on my phone, (laughs) you know, it's like, that's a hobby that, you know, I can do at home. I don't need to go out for that but it's a great stress management tool. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm nice and relaxed. Although stress, it does actually stress me out. But uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like, this is something that is taking me away from all the other stressors in my life. And so many people just don't engage in their hobbies. You can play a musical instrument, maybe you like drawing or painting or whatever it is, you know, reconnect with those different things. And you will start to notice that stress is less of a thing in your life. Absolutely. And the, everything else that we d- we touched on previously in this episode also contributes to stress or stress management. So for example, sleeping better, exercising more, reducing caffeine or reducing alcohol, all of those things will also help to manage your stress uh, as well. And along with those final points of caffeine and alcohol, like substances in general are something that people try to reach for a lot of the time when it comes to managing their stress. And sometimes that can be counterproductive, particularly in the case of alcohol and some other recreational drugs, where if you're using these to manage your stress, you haven't really managed your stress because you haven't dealt with the issue at all. And sometimes these substances can make you less prepared to actually deal with the issues that were causing the stress in the first place. So I would encourage you to just be careful of that. And that's even if it occurs like sparingly, because sometimes what can happen is, you might just go out once per week drinking, but I've had clients who, when other things are going on in their life, you know, maybe they've had a recent uh, breakup or they've had work stress, they go out and they kind of sabotage themselves on a Saturday night. They just get as drunk as they can. It allows them to forget everything that's happened in the week. But the problem is then they're anxious and depressed on Sunday. Their Monday's off to a bad start and their life actually gets worse as a result, even if it's just once per week, which to an Irish person, doesn't seem like a big deal but that's just something that i would say to watch out for because i see it more often than you'd expect 100 anyway gary i think that's all that we wanted to cover yep. they're the, the key points and obviously look there's way more in-depth discussions we could have about every single minutia of this and how we practically do this with our clients and how we recommend in general people do this but i think if you follow all the stuff in there or even the vast majority of the stuff in this episode you'll be in a phenomenal place. You'll be in a place where you know what works, you know what to not spend your time focusing on. And then you'll get to the stage where you're kind of like, oh, I'm on the path. I have everything dialed in. Why was I even focusing on all these different things? You know, like in a diet, people would be like, should I intermittent fast? Like we can can literally dissect that uh, thought, be like, well, is it going to change your calories? Is it going to change your protein? Is it going to be something that you can see yourself doing forever more? It's not going to change your calories. Well, it's not going to lead to fat loss then. Oh, it is going to change your calories. Okay, it's going to lead to the fat loss that you want, you know? Like we can dissect it now with the information that we have, right? And that was kind of the goal of the episode. So Gary, do you have anything else to to add to this? And if not, where can people find us and the usuals? Yeah, that's everything. So if you'd like to work with us in a coaching capacity, we have coaching spaces available and you can find information in the description box below. Additionally, if you're a coach or a wannabe nutritionist or you'd like to just level up, we do have a nutrition certification as well that you can do. The people that have done it so far have been very happy. We've been reviewing content, adding more questions, etc. So it's a really valuable resource for those of you who wish to um, level up 
become a nutritionist, and also just generally have a strong foundation in the theoretical and practical knowledge required to coach nutrition. So highly recommend that. It's a course that you can do in a self-paced manner. We wanted to make it so that whether you're working at the moment or you're dedicating your soul or all of your time to this, that you can just get stuck in at the pace that's available or at the time that's available to you. Uh, there's also tons of like additional recommended reading. So you could you could probably drag this course out, out over four years and keep learning, keep learning, keep learning, keep learning. Um, ideally, we want people to maybe six months to a year that they'd be able to get through it um, faster if you're like super intense and you already have a knowledge base. But we do recommend that you get involved. It's good. It's a thousand euros at the moment, which is very reasonable. I've paid multiple thousands for education courses for my medical degree tens of thousands so it's really not bad i think um so yeah get stuck into that if you are interested now and just, we, just on that like i've seen nutrition courses and brian brian is a nutritionist from a university one of the best universities in ireland and even he's like this is better than what they offer you know absolutely. because first of all like we're teaching people to coach nutrition right you, you can't find that out there Right. Like you think you can. Like, oh, I'm going to teach you to be a nutritionist. And yet all they do is focus on like nutrition research or here is nutrition theory. And there's no practical application of, oh, well, this is how you would deal with someone that, you know, you want to, I don't know, increase their fruit and veg. Like, how do you actually do that in the real world? Right. So we're actually teaching you to coach nutrition while also giving you the theoretical knowledge. And then also, like Gary said, like I've <laughs> included so many additional resources and like references and stuff in there so if you are so possessed where you're like oh i actually want to really dive deep into these claims that he's made here or i just want to learn more about this you'll find references books further reading etc down at the bottom so that you can really really round out your knowledge now that's not necessary like you said gary like you could easily you know push it out to four years and to gain gain that knowledge but you i've also seen people they're doing it in like three months they're just getting after it they're just like right i'm just going to do a lesson per day you know i'm just going to read through the stuff watch the video boom there you go you know like there's like i think it's 75 actual lessons like some there's more in terms of like just quick review lesson here you go do you know these bullet points basically oh you do cool that's that section done you know and i think there's like 75 lessons so you could theoretically get it done in three months if you just did one per day and even had time off on the weekends and stuff you know yeah absolutely and and it's in that sense like when you say 75 lessons like if you add it all up it, it might be similar to like a a big nutrition textbook but the problem is that with nutrition textbooks that you buy and we get asked for recommendations all the time the information about how to coach nutrition isn't actually there and a lot of it might be you know nutrition research and it's focused on physiology and that type of thing which has its place but like i think everything that's in the course is like everything that I actually use in practice to help people, which is what's really important. So um, yeah, get involved if you're interested. And if you're not, maybe you just want to keep following our free content. We put out a ton of that. So make sure you're subscribed to the Triage Method newsletter and also following us on social, social media at Triage Method and the individual triage coaches as well. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we always appreciate ratings and reviews. And also when you share it on your Instagram story or elsewhere. And just on that point of... If you're really interested in our content, like we plan on this year producing quite a bit of free content on the website. So keep an eye on that. But realistically, the best place to stay up to date 
would be to join the email list because then you'll be the one that goes, oh, they've released an article this week. Here it is in the email. I can go to it rather than going six months later going, oh, fuck, actually, they released an article that could have helped me for the last six months. And then I now I have to go and read it, you know. Um, so to stay up to date, the email list is actually the best place to do that. But we do also produce quite a lot of information, quite a lot of content, I should say, on Instagram that is, you know, I would argue is quite helpful. Mm -hmm. I think so. So that's it from us this week, guys. We'll see you again next week. Have a fantastic week. Enjoy.